It is Friday, so um, my uh, friends join me from uh, someplace in Southern California, Jeff Kenny. Jeffrey, how are you? Good. I, as you say, I am. I'm in San Clemente. Yes, and things are well. Yes, things are more or less well. I'm going to Vegas next week. Got it, got it. So you'll head home. And uh, in, from McAllen, Texas, Tim Lynch. Tim, how are you? All's quiet here in the southern front, Mac. Thanks for asking. All right, all right, all right. Weather report? Weather report is very hot, light clouds, no wind, 60 70% humidity. This is not the time to be in McAllen, my friend. How it, lo- it's, it's, and how long will this last? Till October. Oh, so you only got, what, another four months? Oh, yeah, it's a piece of cake, piece of piss. I think you do anything for four months. Good for you. <laughs> Good for you. And so from, I've been told. And from the greater Kansas City area, Will Costantini. Will, how are you? I am grand. Yeah, we had a break in our weather. I think it was 96 for 10 straight days. Ooh. We had the big thunderstorms roll in last night. And uh, supposed to rain for a couple of days. So yeah, it was it was like ninety six and fifty five percent humidity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't quite do the South Texas humidity, just fifty fifty five percent. The um, it's gotten a little bit warmer since last we spoke here in Southern California, but I mean nothing that would rank with something that you guys might confuse with heat. So <laughs> Jeffrey and I have nothing to bitch about. Um, the former assistant commandant of the Marine Corps passed away, Butch Neal. And um, I, I, I never um, served under uh, Butch Neal, to my knowledge. Um, uh, the first time I heard his name was in General Zinni's combat concepts, when General Zinni says, and me and Butch Neal were going to Mary Washington on the weekends, Right, <laughs> he said I had money in my pocket. Life was good, and then this thing called Vietnam starts getting on my radar. That's the first time I hear Butch Neal's um, uh, name. I wind up interviewing him twice. The first time was about the Battle of Getland's Corner. He becomes the uh, he ultimately becomes the commanding officer of uh, of India Company Three Nine after their company commander is killed uh, in in what uh, might be the most decorated fight. Uh, of the Vietnam War in terms of a, a single fight. Um, in about a four-and-a-half-hour fight, uh, Lieutenant John Bobo's weapons platoon commander is awarded the Medal of Honor posthumously. Uh, four Navy crosses, six silver stars, and three bronze stars in about a four-hour fight. Um, and uh, it's it's a really interesting story, and I had never met him, and I contacted him, and he said he would come on. He was very clipped about what he said, though. Uh, he's very measured about what he said. Um, and um, the story is the company gets sent out, the battalion S3. I, I've told that we've talked about this before because Tim's dad essentially gets given a, a very similar order uh, to do something you know is wrong. And he writes an article called The Dead Went Last, and it's about operations at LZ Margo. And and your dad was the opso for who, Tim? 226. 226. And so... Um, Indy Company 3-9 is told to go out. Um, they've been moving north out of Camp Carroll up towards the DMZ. They are west of Contien. 
right? So they're east of what Marble Mountain and, and that area, up in the Leatherneck Square area of the northern part of Icor. And there's a lot of activity. Uh, they see a lot of wide trails trampled, newer equipment on the ground, so they know larger, newer enemy forces are in the area. They're actually being stalked. So they get told to set in three platoon ambushes, don't dig in. Company CP with um, Corporal Jack Riley's squad to reinforce it and some attachments from weapons platoon stay uh, with the company. When the platoons get about a click um, beyond where they're supposed to be, actually, which are about a, quick, uh, a click away from the company CP, they set in and an NVA battalion attempts to overrun the company CP. They walk mortars over it and then they commence the attack. The awards I told you um, um, are what ensues from that fight. Um, Lieutenant, First Lieutenant uh, Richard I. Butch Neal uh, is an FO with, I think, 1st Platoon. They're fighting to get back. He takes over the company um, when they finally get the company consolidated. They go back to Camp Carroll. He gets flown to 3rd Marine Division CP at Dong Ha. And um, he uh, is essentially summoned by Lieutenant Major General Hockman, who is who is later killed in a helicopter crash. Um, right. I want to say in November of 1967. But Hockman essentially asks him what the fuck happened out there, and uh, and how could this happen? And you know why did you? Um, what were you doing? And why were you doing it? And and. First Lieutenant Neal pushes back on his narrative and says, hey, sir, we were doing exactly what we got told to do. In fact, we lieutenants told Captain Getlin that we shouldn't do it because Captain Getlin wanted to keep the company together for the for the night because of how much activity we had seen, right? And um, we told him we should just report the three positions, um, and but we should all stay with the company where we reported the company CP to be. And Captain Getlin said, I won't do that. And he said, that's what, that's what happened. And then we fought our asses off. Hockman then dismisses him. As he's leaving the 3rd Marine Division CP, one major stops him and says, hey, are you from India 3-9? He says, yes. And it's Major Al Gray. Gray sits him down and says, explain to me what happened out there. And it begins with a lifelong friendship uh, between those two guys. So it's I mean, his story starts in, in tragic and yet uh, riveting fashion. He came on a second time to talk about his book, What Now, Lieutenant, with me. And when you talk about Butch Neal's life, um, he grew up in a small town in Massachusetts. Uh, by It's called Hull, Massachusetts. His father passes away, I believe, when he's in high school. He becomes a garbage man, right, to support his mom and his sisters. Right, working for the city um, and whatnot. And that's how he puts himself through college. He becomes a Marine Corps officer, an artillery officer, rising to the um, position of the assistant commandant of the Marine Corps. So his story is an incredible story. Um, and uh, I just, um, to me, I don't know if you knew General Neal. I don't know if you served with him or your uh, your path crossed with him. I'd just be curious about your, your thought. He, he was involved in that very first MUSOC, and, and Colonel Coates, that, who, who works with Jeff, would, would probably remember more than I. Mm -hmm. I. I remember that only because when he came to IOC 
um, and talked to us or at TBS, I can't remember which, I, re- I recognized him. But I, you know, I was a second lieutenant and I didn't have any interactions with him. He's a contemporary of my father's, obviously, and they were pretty close. But uh, yeah, I mean, st- needless to say, a stellar man, and a and a you know just just a hell of a, a hell of a story. Right. Most people know him as the spokesman for Central Command during Operation Desert Storm. Right. They would recognize those pictures right. and say, "Oh, you're talking about that guy." Jeff, how about you? Did you ever cross paths with him? Did you ever work for him or with him? I I did not work for him, but I did cross paths with him. When we got back from uh, my first tour in Iraq in the summer of 05, General Sattler was the MEF commander, and he he had several all-officer meetings, and he pushed hard the idea we need to have volunteers to become advisor team leaders, which is why I did it. But the crowning blow of doing it was Marine Corps Ball of 2005, there with Lori, see John Bylas, who was a lieutenant with me and Will in 3-8, right? And uh, I go, what are you doing, Johnny? And he's in, he had he got out of the Marine Corps, came back in, and he's now an intel officer. He said, I'm going to go on this advisor team, and we're looking for a team leader. And uh, and and then the guest speaker starts talking. After the, the guest speaker was Butch Neal, and he gets introduced by General Sattler. General Sattler said he was out there, not an advisor team, but an advisor alone and unafraid, like 1969 or something. And because uh, that was his second tour, he was an advisor. And he said, well, I was alone, but I sure as hell wasn't unafraid. He gave this great talk about what it was like being, a, being an advisor to the Vietnamese, right? So, uh, so I did it. I went, I went to uh, General Boudreau, who was at the ball with us. I said, sir, I'm fucking doing it. I'm sorry. He goes, all right, you know. And uh, the next week, I was, in, I was in charge of that team that they were looking for a team leader. So, but I remember that. I remember his talk. It was really... Uh, there's a couple guys like him who could. There was him. There was a. Uh, remember uh, JJ Carroll? Yeah, yeah, hell yeah. He's, yeah. He's another. He's another guy who had a shitload of advisor experience. He he spoke Vietnamese. He'd come and talk. I had him as a guest speaker twice, um, and he would come and talk to Vietnamese. He walk around on the tables during the breakfast, graduation breakfast, and crouch down and yell, scream Vietnamese slogans at the uh, at the lieutenants. But, <laughs> So and General Neal wasn't that ex- he wasn't that you know uh, excited about it, but he gave a great talk, you know, and uh, that's what I remember about him, you know. And then again, assistant commandant, all that stuff, and and like you said, spokesman, you know. Before I didn't, I forgot about him until General Sattler introduced him. You know, he did a great job talking too. You know, you know the other officer I've heard that was spoke. Well, spoke Vietnamese was um, General Smith, Ray Smith. Yeah, and, and it's Smith not like those are Colonel Ripley. Yeah, it's like it's not like those are Romance languages, right? That have that Fuck we yeah. see that we see some sort of root, right, in in our language, which with theirs or is so remotely trackable in English, right? That's based in Latin. Yeah. It is completely different brain activity, and those guys, You're right. you know, uh, Colonel Carroll, right. Um, he was at the basic school when I was a lieutenant and a uh, student. He scared the shit out of me, man. He had, I mean, he wore that flat top, right? Yeah. And he is, he is no fuck around dude, man. He was, uh, he, he's an intimidating guy, man. He was an intimidating sure. guy. And, you well, know, remember he punched out the, he, he was, uh, remember this will was when we were in three, eight, he fucking, uh, he, he was in charge of, uh, was it six Marine? 
Um, but he, he got he beat up his like logistics, uh, his like his uh, MSSG guy or something. Remember, in South America? I do. Yeah. Yeah. Punched the guy out for being insubordinate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then, uh, but you know, Ray Smith and Larry Livingston and John Ripley all spoke. They're all in the same Monterey class. That's what they did with those guys. Sent them to Monterey, and then they said, "You don't need to send any kind of, unless there was new weapon systems." They got a, they got you know some some uh, spin up on that, but it was all the shit they did as company commanders in Vietnam, or you know, uh, that that got them through that shit. And, and mostly it was supporting arms. So Butch Neal, you know, had, you know, had his shit together on that for sure. You know. Yeah. No. Um, how about you, Will? Um, did you ever cross paths with I think him? He was. He was. A, I think he was a CG at Second Bar Div when I was down there at one point, and then uh, the artillery guy, and then uh, General George Flynn, who was at McSiddick. When I was up at the ACMAX office, was a senior artillery guy. And Flynn had been the military assistant when, or the, I think it was the aide, when Al Gray was a commandant. And so Flynn was connected to Neil. Neil is a Massachusetts guy. Uh, so he's connected to Dunford through that. So I think Neil came through the office once or twice. Um, but I also know that those three used to try and meet regularly, which means probably every three or four months. And uh, yeah. I would just hear either from General Dunford or General Flynn, some General Neal sort of stories. I, I think Dunford saw him as a mentor. Um, oh, really? You know, he'd been in the office. Oh, they were Massachusetts you know. guys, man. That Boston Marine guys, thing, right? The guy had been, he'd been the ACMAC. Uh, you know, Dunford had... Uh, was Mundy's senior aide. So I think he was there during the transition when uh, when Gray went out and Mundy came in. You know, so it's all, it's typical Marine Corps incestuous, you know, one and a half degrees of separation from everybody. <laughs> um, that, that Vietnamese thing, we were in the club one time. I don't know if you were there, Will. It was like 88 or 89. Me and Dan and Joe were in there, though. We're waiting for drinks, and Lon, who was a bartender for Seems like for 50 years she was there. Yeah. She, her family got brought over by Ray Smith, and we weren't getting drinks. And General Smith, then Colonel Smith, he says, "What the fuck are you three standing there like a couple of jackoffs?" So we're trying to get drinks. He looks at her and he goes, "Don't call, don't call, don't call, boy." bad. After that, I, he never had a problem getting drinks from Lon. <laughs> the, um, no, I mean they. When you were, when, I mean, to me, they were intimidating guys because you knew what they had done, right? Um, yeah. You knew the fighting they had been a part of, and, and they were company great officers during that. I mean, I mean, they were in the middle of it, and they would start telling their stories, right? They would scare the living shit out of you when they, they told their stories about, like, what happened at night and shit. Um, right. And um, they were great guys. They were tougher than shit. And it surprised me that, that, Colonel Carroll or whatever he was when he punched out that guy. I mean, to say that he wore his heart on his sleeve is, <laughs> I mean, you yeah. did not have to get your Ouija board out to see if he was in a good mood. I mean, 
you can see it brewing in him, right? Yeah. And that's what amazed me. Like, you know, that guy must have been dumber, dumber than a bag of hammers, man, because because there are Roman candles firing off out of Colonel Carroll's right ears. <laughs> I just can't. Yeah, he. Last time I saw him was this kid, uh, JJ Carroll was uh, turning over. Um, I think he had ITB at SOI. That was the XO. Uh, and Colonel Carroll came to that. So I talked to him for a long time. A little little club they got there at, uh, at SOI, you know. Um, and uh, I, I I think he's passed though since then. No, no, I, um, I hope not. No, I I uh, his son or JJ. Um, he uh, he we put him through IOC. When I got done being General Mattis' staff sec, General Latonsky says, hey, I want you to stay. And I said, please, no. And he goes, okay, <laughs> stay for a month, and I'll get you out of here. And I said, thank you. He said, what do you want to do? I said, I, current ops. And, you know, we were doing, you know, the second, you know, Battle of Fallujah was coming up. And, you know, and so, I mean, I'm, I'm a reservist, right? So I'm, I'm helping out. So Roger is the division current ops. So Roger Turner, uh, who we put right. through IOC, um, and uh no he no you remember I, roger was the we didn't put him through ioc no 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 you, you no 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 you didn't but you didn't you're a little ju you're a little no. junior there killer <laughs> i snapped i snapped him in though at ioc right before i left I snapped, <laughs> there you go spanning I, the I spanning the globe yeah, right he was in the first <laughs> ioc he was in the first ioc class um that tim and i we were just snapping in in the class and helping out right but you saw him yeah. and you're like Who's that? Who's John Wayne over there? Oh, that's Lieutenant yeah, really. That's Lieutenant Turner, right? And Roger, yeah. you knew he was I mean, he was, you know, physically and mentally up to it. I mean, and then um John Myrna was doing current ops yeah. and so was JJ Carroll. I mean, so th three just great IOC lieutenants that we had put right. through. Um I got a chance to work with them for about 6 months. And it was fantastic. It's it's fantastic. The, uh, no, but again, you know, Butch Neal, you read his life story from, you know, from as, as a garbage man supporting himself and his family and putting himself through college and, and then, you know, what he became in the Marine Corps as an artillery officer, I might add. Um, and that gives you some idea of the respect that his peers held him in. And so, uh, yeah. not, so uh, a sad day. Um, um, I, I have a kind of look over the horizon question. How does this all end, um, in your opinion? You know, Force Design 2030 will not be anywhere close to being done when um, General Berger gives up the Marine Corps. So the next two commandants will certainly um, uh, put their spin on it. Um, this week, you have the Army who spent years and I don't know how much money on their on their gender neutral physical fitness test is is now having to scrap it because it can't deliver gender neutral results, right? Um, you know we continue to have the American military being mo more woke than ready to fight, so. How do you guys see this? How does this this thing end if you look over the horizon? And again, um, I said a few months ago that 
you know, that the Navy should be put in res into receivership and somebody should take it over and run it. And I just saw somebody sent me an article essentially saying that this Congress needs to to convene a special um, committee on the United States Navy. The, the United States Navy just submitted its plans for ships. And both the House and the, and the Senate shit all over it. Essentially, I don't want to say ripped it up, but they said, yeah, no, that's not happening. And so um, you see the American military missing it by a lot. And so I guess my question for you is, how do you see, um, how does this all play out? Tim? It doesn't change till we experience a catastrophic defeat of such a magnitude that everybody recognizes the current crop of military leadership is, is not doing, is not up to the, to the job, and they need to be replaced by more effective, realistic people who are more connected to the realities of the ground combat or air combat or sea combat uh, um, world than those that, 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 that populate the Pentagon, the perfume princes, as Hackworth used to call them, who, who, who are absolutely, absolutely willing to throw anything, any baby in any bathwater out as long as, it, as long as they feel like they're all on this, you know, moving up getting along with the administration, doing what they think their masters want is important so they can, can progress up the rank line and hopefully graduate to the point where they can get it, you know, arrested for for um, dealing with foreign governments and not telling anybody, you know, that kind of that kind of high level shit. Everybody wants to get there, but they're not going to get there by being a very efficient and good and tough commander. They'll never get there if they were so prickly that they take umbrage to a logistics officer giving him shit and punching the little son of a bitch in the stomach where he belongs, th that kind of a person is not going to come to the fore until they've seen the kind of epic loss of life that it's going to take to to turn us around. And it's going to be a hideously ugly affair. But that will get them. That will get minds concentrated on life. I'm maybe paying attention to having a military whose first and only focus is to fight. And that would be a very pleasant thing to see because that is not the primary focus of the military now. It's not. It's obviously it's it's what they they the military leadership does not consider it one of their missions. They don't even pay it halfway decent lip service. <clears throat> but and I I can that and that's how I feel about that. I'm sorry. All right. Well, um, you can start with Force Design 2030. Um, the larger questions of the American DoD. How does this all change or does it? If you just if you just do the math, the administration's request is plus five percent this year. Um, so for the Marine Corps, five percent is about two and a half billion dollar increase. But the Marine Corps is two thirds of the budget. Damn close to it is personnel account. Well, uh, the personnel account is going to have to go up eight or nine percent keep pace with inflation. I'll do a little math in public here. If we're at 48 billion, two thirds of that is about 32 billion. Eight or 9% of that is about 3 billion. You just ate your entire increase and then some just paying people, which means your entire procurement account, instead of going up, goes down. Um, your operations account, your procurement account goes down which means you can't get to force design 
2030. There is no investment dollar that you can get there and maintain any kind of readiness. Um, so the next echelon of Marine Corps leaders are going to be put in that horrific bind of readiness today uh, or a dream tomorrow. You hope that they're serious people and they're going to do readiness today. And if you focus on readiness today, then you're going to have to take, you know, what do you think are those things in the future that are real? Um, you know, and as, as General Van Riper in that one uh, podcast that we saw, it's not real to be spending ho however many hundreds of thousands of dollars on rocket rounds when you can buy artillery right. rounds for in the thousands. It's just not real. And so I think that the fiscal side of this is going to drive um, it's going to drive the leadership into producing a Marine Corps that's going to be available. Um, you know, on the other side of it, it just, uh, name, name the senior leader, Department of State, Department of Defense, Department of the Navy. Name the serious guy. Who is? It doesn't have to be even be Ernest King. Who's John Lehman? God sakes, up there. Who is it? Um, it's not clear to me who the serious people are, and uh, um, I, I hate to. I, I hate to say that it will take some sort of disaster to get people to think thoughtfully and rationally, um, but we're, we're just in we're just in different worlds. Um, what the leadership seems to think is important now. Um, what they seem to think is important now versus what I think a whole lot of other very experienced people seem to think is important now. Um, and so is it going to take a disaster where, where the house just gets completely cleaned out? And if it does, I don't know what's on the shelf after that. So, you know, like I said, the water, the glass doesn't, it's got a couple of drops of dirty water in the bottom of a glass for me. But the numbers side of it are sort of irrefutable. Um, you know, you, you can't get there. You're going to have to divest a whole hell of a lot more than you're divesting now and recovering some of that. And I don't, I don't know what you have left of the Marine Corps at that point. Jeff, um, do you want to start with Force, yeah. Force Design Twenty Thirty, yeah. and and then uh, and then the wider DoD? How look over the horizon? How does this change? What changes? Yeah, I, I have to tell you, I think that what's happening with us in the military, we're very 
cognizant of that because of our backgrounds, our whole lives. You know? So that leaps out at us. But the truth is, uh, this is just one. That's just one facet of a nationwide, culture-wide um, disaster that we're going through right now. And people are starting to notice. People are not, you know, they're they're kind of getting upset with some of these things. And some of them seem small, at least small compared to the national defense. They're not buying the border stuff. They're not buying the reason for inflation is because of Putin when we had inflation before that. The destruction, the self-destruction of our energy independence and all that stuff, these are all deliberate acts that are meant, and probably some of them have what they consider to be altruistic you know, motives in mind, to change our society fundamentally. And most Americans don't want that. So I, I kind of agree with the other two folks with Will and Tim, you know, that uh, it's got to be something dramatic. But I have to tell you, because I look up shit, you know, I look up, when did a disaster ever turn a country around? No, usually when a disaster happens, they, they keep going down. The only if they can, if they don't totally get destroyed, does it, you know, does it uh, result in self, you know, examination. What will happen if there's a military disaster, they'll just blame us. They'll just blame the military because the news media is not adversarial. News media is in is in uh, lockstep in, in a lot of ways, in most ways, with our our current government. So the, I, but I think though people are not being fooled anymore. You know, I think what people are saying is that, uh, you know, that that this stuff is uh, it's not working. It's not where we don't like it. You know, and I think that that is going to be. It's not going to be like a Waterloo. It's not going to be like, uh, you know, the 1939 in Poland. It's going to be like people are going to go, holy shit, this sucks. Finally, now they need to change the whole country. And they're, and people are saying, we're not having it. I don't want to have to buy an electric car. I don't want to have to ride the bus everywhere. I, I don't want to have a shitty job. I want to have a good job. You know, and, uh, and I think that's what's going to turn this thing around. The voters. I um I don't see, you know, I don't see catastrophe turning it around. And I agree with Jeff in terms of I think that I mean that'll just get blamed and and it'll get blamed as an isolated incident. So, you know, I my question is um first of all, uh, relative to the international situation, Vladimir Putin's done um, the United States a huge favor by doing what he's done. And because it has brought together uh, Europe in a way, talking about collective defense, talking about um, energy independence, things that, you know, you know, were poo-pooed a year ago. Simply poo-pooed. I mean, you know, the people who talk that stuff are ridiculous. Russia's okay. part of Europe, Angela Merkel's narrative, Barack Obama's narrative, and other and other people's narratives before that. Um, and so, Russia at the end of all this will, in my opinion, will be diminished. Europe will will be stronger, and that's a good thing, which buys America time. And I think in that time, you will see the United, the Department of Defense continue to become weaker and shittier. And then the question is. What catastrophes befall the United States? And is it such that we wind up um, on our own 
first island chain, which is, you know, Alaska, Hawaii to Guam. Is that, um, is that what we wind up with? Yeah. And so, so I don't, I think it would be a series of, um, terrible catastrophes that would involve great loss of life and that there would be no way to point fingers at other people. The conclusions would be extremely obvious. We were simply outfought. They're better than, than, than we are. We have allowed ourselves to atrophy and bullshit ourselves, right, with all the, all the woke shit that, that we hear on a regular basis, right, that that was somehow um, what made us great. What makes us great is high standards, people willing to go out and fight, right, and in some cases die for the nation. And that's what's always made us great. Beyond that, you know, is diversity important with the United States? Fuck yeah, it is. But it's not more important than high standards, right, rigorous training, good equipment, and getting enough of it out there to support people who have to go in, in harm's way. And the nation doesn't seem to be about that. But I don't think one... And, and relative to the Marine Corps force design, I mean, General Burgers are going to deliver a Marine Corps to his successor um, that's in, in a hurt locker. Uh, it's in mid-stride, and it's not, in, it's not striding strongly. It's got a lot of theoretical questions out there, and somebody's going to have to fill in the fiscal blanks, as Will said. And, I mean, look, and how long is, is, is gas going to stay at five dollars or six dollars a gallon that's good that that what that doubles the fuel bill for the entire marine corps the entire marine corps so whatever you were going to pay additionally in personnel right you're going to pay double for fuel for everything we do that's not going to be a small bill either and so i think the 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 next couple commandants are going to have you know, to face the fiscal reality and also the environment of a Navy that's not on board in and su- being supportive, you know, of, of the Commandant's vision. The Commandant's vision and the Navy shipbuilding plans are, are not in sync. And so um, I think money will, will force the Marine Corps into some really hard decisions. And, uh, but I, I, I don't see the adults in the room uh, as we often talk about, that uh, we'll stand up and say, hey, we need to talk about this stuff. We, we can't have this. Because uh, when the Army, you know, was talking about their their gender-neutral fitness test, nobody stood up. And, and now they're talking about different fitness tests, whether your job I- involves possibly being involved in frontline combat or if you're just, I don't know what you'd call everybody else. We would call them pogues, right? Right, mm-hmm. but but they would br- they would bristle at that, right? What do you mean? We're just as good as you are. Well, our physical fitness standard says you're not, right? You didn't even take our test, so I'm not sure what that makes you, right? Um, you're a support soldier. You're not a frontline combat soldier. Okay, so you got to go sit over there. But nobody raises that. Right. Nobody raises that question. And then you see the difficulties in recruiting. And so it's a pretty bleak picture, in my opinion, for the DOD. Right. The race to be most woke via your Twitter Mm -hmm. account, uh, the realities of recruiting um, and then the readiness numbers that you see um, out there. And so um, anyway, to me, another thought. 
Go ahead. It gets worse though is that that what what's going to go on behind the scenes is uh, I think the budget is a little over three trillion this year, of which about five hundred billion is interest, and I think the federal government is paying three percent or less on its interest, and so. Uh, if we have a recession, you know, the Fed just took it up three quarters of a point. Um, if you read the business news, they need to get interest rates up there into the five, sixes, and sevens. So you take a trillion dollars out of your budget to pay interest. You know, one of the discretionary accounts is DOD. Um, so you atrophy the military by just starving resources. Uh, the easiest line to cut, uh, people, the quickest is operations, right. i.e. training. So you've, you'll, you'll have, um, your current accounts go down. So you're not modernizing, uh, you're not maintaining equipment uh, and all of your operational accounts go down so you're not training on what you got. And so you have this appearance of a military. Eighth and Isle look great. Blue Angels, the Thunderbirds. But it's not like this is a disease, though, or like a, a natural disaster. This is caused by morons who run our government. Yeah, but totally. it, it's a... It's a thing, so, though, that um, it doesn't matter what happens in the 2022 election and probably even the 2024 election. The idea of having a recession for six to 12 months, um, to starve out inflation, because inflation will destroy you rapidly, um, you know, that, those those fiscal numbers, you, you can't really, you just can't do more with less. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. And so we're, we're rolling down this hill, and we're really not even sure how fast we're going down, just on that side of that equation. Right. Well, let's, so, just say, let's just say we did a 180 on the energy thing. We started the pipeline again. We started fracking yeah, but, again. But, we started, but Jeff, I mean, we have not made investments yeah, in two to three you years. Can't do that. It's not going to happen yet. When you read what the oil companies say, okay, um, you're talking tens of billions of dollars worth of investments that got to pay out over a 10 to 20 year time frame. Uh, they're oh. not going to make those investments. They well, have no incentive to right now. Uh, and if they right, did, right now they don't. Right. But no. They, but if, I mean, but if they did, we you don't see the benefit of it for two to three years into the future, as it is. I mean, that's so if they change your mind that's today, better than never, though. It's better than never. No, I, I got it, now. but you're still you're yeah. looking at two, three, four years potentially. That, that's if you can find the frackers to frack because ninety percent of those companies are gone. They're gone. Yeah, I, well, I, they come back. Those things can get turned. Not fast. Yeah, Not it, fast. it can get turned faster than but, never, though. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. where we're at now. But yeah, but, but, they, we're, but, but we're. If we're looking at inflation that has not peaked yet. Mm -hmm. 
And I think they printed 8.6 or 8.9% last month. Where's it going to peak? If it peaks at 10%, think of that. We never had an excess of 10% in training funds. And now we're going to take 10% out. You start taking 10% bites out of stuff. Um, It's hard to recover. You don't recover from that in just a year. So it's a it's a so, decline. So you're saying it's going to take a lot longer to get out of this than it took us to get into it. I, I, I that's valid. I sense that it's sounds a, valid to me. Yeah, it's but, a four to six. Look, the Reagan military really didn't start hitting until when mid eighties. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's when you could start 86. to see it. You, get, you didn't see it in 83 and 84. Started to. You, know? Huge. you, you, were, you, were, you weren't going down anymore. But no, we were right. coming up, and you really saw it, 87, 88, 89, right? Yeah. It's like, hey, this is better. That's the end of his term. That's eight years. That's a yeah. long time. So and, yeah, and here's, just, here's, the, here's the question in the interim, though. We were just talking last week about these uh, sudden spate of Class A mishaps in naval aviation. Okay, now we're going to now listen to what what we're saying about the fuel. We know they're going to be cutting flight hours even more. Or even more are our leaders going to back out of deployment, saying you haven't given us the amount of, of of training time we need to do this safely? We're not making these deployments. Do you think that's going to happen? Or never, will our never, leaders instead never, have bullshit never. safety stand downs when they keep on crashing planes because they don't know how to fly them and blaming this shit on the fleet when, in fact, this all starts at the very top because we yeah. can't focus on what we need to focus on like we did back in the 80s when life was good. But the COVID, I think, has put an end to the globalist dreams. I, I, but for whatever that's worth. But yeah. This is uh, not, it's we're, not in, we're, in, we're in a bad situation. I think I think I think Vladimir has, has has done a done a pretty good yeah, he's number. He's helped on that. out too tremendously. Yeah. Right, right. Um, somebody sent me an email and um, um, they asked me to pose a question, so I will. Um, the experiences that each of you have had, right? Will's Italian. Jeffrey is Mick Italian. Tim, what are you? You're Scottish, uh, Irish? German, German Italian. Right. I'm no, German is <laughs> Irish, excuse me. German Irish. I'm Irish. Right. Yeah. Um, I'm Catholic. Uh I believe Jeff's Catholic. Will? You bet. He is too. You may have forgotten, but he is. <laughs> <laughs> uh Tim. You guys called me Orange Man at IOC, so I think that yes. answers that question, right? Oh, I, I was the only, Protestant, the only Protestant Irish guy at the Irish officer's course because back then I forgot. every every instructor yeah. there had an Irish surname with the exception he, of, uh, of, I think... He's what? a fucking Bushmills drinker, goddammit. <laughs> um, what impact has your experience experiences... Uh, had on your faith well somebody i was talking about the book when bad things could happen when when bad things happen to good people and somebody sent this question in uh after i was talking about that so um well um i mean i uh i don't think that i am a uh um what would you call it a uh, 
the the dogma of the church uh, troubles me some. I have faith, but I don't know it's in line with with that dogma. Um, um, and I. Uh, Okay, so you know, if, so, so that's a starting point, and I would tell you I'm very similar. I'm similar to you. I'm a skeptic. Okay, have what impacted the things that you've seen around the world? Did it have any impact on the way you view, view your faith? Um, I, I, you know, I think the what I try and take is that um, you know how does how do you act? personally uh and attempting to do the right thing because you can't solve the world's problems yeah. right the stuff that the places we've been the things that you've seen you can't solve that you can only solve this particular relationship that you have that's the only thing you can solve the only thing you can work on and so do you do the do you try and do good acts and in theory if everyone does good acts, then it all gets resolved. But, you know, you can't go out and expect some supernatural being to solve all of these things. It ain't going to happen. So the suffering uh, that you've seen in your lifetime, in your trips around the world, um, had no impact on your faith? Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure I ever really thought about it in that context. Um uh, All right, well, hold that it's thought. A it's a brutal place out there. Right. You know, hold that, it's hold a that brutal thought. Place. If you have another thought, put your hand up. You'll be recognized. Jeffrey, how about you? Um, mine's definitely stronger since the last, like, 35 years, especially last, uh, since this whole war on terror thing, 9-11 for sure, because uh, I believe, I found out about myself that I believe that things are going to get better always if you just don't give up, you know, if you just don't quit and uh, you should, uh, but I'll tell you, and, and like the, Will talks about the dogma. I grew up in a Catholic, we went to church every Sunday when I was a kid. I hated it. Then I forced <laughs> my kids to go every, every Saturday because there's less people on Saturday, less people I had to shake hands with doing the sign of peace. And it's faster. So it and, probably, and it's normally faster too. Especially if you had Father Kennedy, he was lickety split. <laughs> and uh, I even took the kids to the field during the war because that was a fifteen-minute mass, man. But uh, <laughs> you know, but seriously speaking, though, I, I believe in the dogma—the fact that you know, like I can't go do communion because I I got divorced, and uh, and and so be it, you know. Uh, um, you pay a price. And the things I did, I, I wish I didn't do. I can't change it. Just try not to do it again. You know, to do worse. And and see and the sh shit I saw, especially dead Marines. Right? It's uh, it made me. It didn't make me believe there wasn't a God. Maybe believe there was. All the horrible shit that happens, isn't because there's. It because there's no God. It's because people aren't thinking about it. You know, that's what it is. And uh, so mine is. 
stronger now. I believe uh, there's definitely somebody above us. You know, I don't know. And if you read the Bible, to me, the people say it's bullshit. Adam and Eve, it could never happen. You know, that what about the dinosaur? That type of shit just fucking makes me want to throw up. It's obviously a book of parables to influence your behavior, you know? And uh, so that's how I kind of, yeah, do I believe Noah was floating around? Some guy named Noah was there, you know, a small area probably. You know, he had to do something like that, and it got extrapolated. Telephone game through the ages. But I believe that uh, you know, all those lessons that they try and push in both testaments are valid. They're the, they're the bedrock of our society, and ours is best because of that. Because from that comes Greek, you know, comes, comes uh, you know, the, the British form of uh, justice, comes to the Constitution of the United States and the Bill of Rights and everything, and the, and the you know, the, the habits that we have that are good comes from that i think so there <laughs> tim no i mean and again I, I, the basis of the question was you know um the suffering that you see right and the way we all struggle um and again the suffering you see outside the united states is is uh, i mean other than this the thing that happened to my sister i mean you think you know what poverty is in the United States, and then you go to the Philippines, and and you've never seen anything like it, you know. And uh, and then you go to other places. I mean, I saw, you know, I, I had the misfortune of seeing a young girl get stoned, and um, by grown ass men, you know. And you watch that shit, and and then you reflect on, you know, the way you grew up. So you see suffering in the world. You know, other than Timmy, Orange Man, um, but he was—I mean, he was relatively close in, in, the, in the broad spectrum of, of religion. Um, you know, did it again? The question in the email was, did it impact your faith? So, Timmy, well, I—I—I'm well, I, 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 fortunate in one respect in that I didn't have to see any dead Marines, but I also saw a lot more of that of that of that suffering over in Afghanistan. I, I'm. I've walked upon uh, the bodies of children who had frozen to death out at the public dump in, 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 in Kabul once. I mean, two of them, I, I recognize the kids. And, and, he, and you see that kind of, of, of senseless loss. You, you, you endure the suffering that many of us had to go through when we were there. And what gives that suffering meaning? When, when I was raised in the Episcopalian church, of course, we had all the formalities of the Catholic church, but you didn't have to confess anything unless you fucked up on the stock market somewhere. I mean, that was generally the rule for Episcopalians. But, that, that of course, Episcopalian Well, the rule, hey, just, just so else. you know, Catholics, we never tell the truth in confession. I mean, like, <laughs> right, Jeff? Jeff, Jeff and Will can yeah. tell you that. I mean, you I'm go just, into confession and you don't say shit about what you actually did. I didn't take out, my, I could give you mine right now. I was mean to my sisters. I didn't, I didn't take out the garbage and I didn't mind my mom on a number of occasions. Right, and you lied because you didn't tell everything. Yeah, yeah, no, those were straight. Those were, I mean, I probably did those things, but that, I mean, I was lying about everything else. So, I mean, that's Catholicism. That's how we do it, Timmy. So, when so, I first got to where I go to confession, I didn't have sins like uh, for a couple of weeks because I already confessed them. I had to go every week, so I used to make it up so I wouldn't waste the guy's time. There you go. So I go. I stole something. What do you consider a child? 
I stole some of it, and then I thought, and I lied because I didn't steal it. There you go. So, the, the beauty yeah. of Catholicism. You guys get so <laughs> tight about it. We figure it out. Come on. Well, well yeah, hey, anyway. you have Italian kids and Irish kids. Like, we can't figure this shit out? Come on. <laughs> well, with the Episcopalian Church, I, I, I don't attend church regularly like you guys do, and I, but I believe my faith Not anymore. stronger. Did. As, as the longer yeah. I was outside the country, the longer I was exposed to to situations and scenarios in which, quite frankly, I never thought I would find myself uh, 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 in. Because, I mean, like when, when we're down in Nimrod's doing those projects, I'm I'm a month living living like a Stone Age guy. And there's no AC or anything in those goddamn places. I mean, it's it's it was a different experience, which I, I found rewarding, but I had to give it some kind of meaning. And so for me, it's the struggle. And you talked about this, I believe, uh, I, well, I'm, I assumed you did from the from that book, uh, when bad things happen to good people, the struggle of good versus evil. You know, well, that, God that's has a not. Cop, that's a copy of the book called Job. I mean, yeah, that's yeah, all, yeah, yeah. The whole Bible oh. is is uh, when bad things happen to good people. That's <laughs> that's a, that's a that's a valid point too. But yeah. you. Yeah, I hear you. You though. made You're me right. lose my track, Jeff. God damn it! I'm but sorry. At, I lost at any rate, too. when you talked about the good versus evil, you know. Right. I, I prefer to think of myself and in all places and all times as an agent of good and by demonstrating good behavior, good principles and whatnot, this is my positive impact on the world. And, and, and particularly when in my position as, as, as bringing aid to Afghanistan, that was maybe even more important, but it applies everywhere. But there's evil out there. And I've met people who are fucking evil, who exude evil. You can feel it coming off them oh, yeah. like a force. And and I don't think that your average American understands. Yeah, there's lots of good people, but they don't know how bad evil can be because evil is evil, and they do not give a fuck about killing people. That is re not even remotely on their agenda of things they care about. And that's and, and there's plenty of them out there. And so, I always would consider myself a religious person in that I look upon the. The, the Bible as a series of parables with which a good man lives a good life. No man lives up to everything that he knows he should do. God knows I'd be much better off had I. But I always struggle to stay on the good side of things because particularly for guys like Jeff Willing and, and, and you, Matt, guys that were actually in combat, unlike myself, but that's a, that's a fine gray line to, to walk over between legitimately gunning people down and getting a little bit outside the lines of proper behavior. And and what's the consequences when you get outside the lines? It's the damage done to the psyches of your men. It's self-inflicted damage. And so that's why I think we should always be on the side of good. Not only that, but it sounds, it sounds awesome too to always say I'm on the side of good. I mean, who doesn't want no, to say that? But I, but I mean, what you I, just, I what, what you, what are, you just said is absolutely true, Tim. I mean, the, yeah, the, da the damage that you do to you know, to yourself, um, you, I mean, yeah. you obviously have to live with, I, um, you know, I, 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 the, my, I find when bad things happen to good people, when I'm in my twenties, early twenties, my, my, my parents stopped speaking to each other. And, you know, my dad's a famous guy and my family's kind of imploding, you know, and my sisters are, are kind of doing their own thing and in a way that is not reflective of our family values and you know and I'm watching this whole thing and um and and my because of my catholic the dogma that that will talks about you know um 
why would God allow this to happen to my family? You know, and I'm trying to figure right. that out. And, and I'm so very much kind of in an episode that would be reflective of my future, I begin to read. You know, Jean-Paul Sartre and existentialism, I take, I was three units short of a minor in theology in college because I would take them as electives because I wanted to understand different views of God and why would God allow this to happen to my family? And so I I went in search of, and then my roommate, um, I I told him I had a theory that God God didn't do this stuff. God doesn't do this stuff. And I, I yeah. called it my shake and roll theory, and that is God's a cool guy. He's up by a pool, right, and he's bored, got beautiful girls up there, and he, and he grabs some dirt, and he fashions it into our universe, and he asks one of them to blow on it like it's Vegas, right? And then he blows life into it, and he fires it out there, and he's done, right? And we are down here as human beings suffering in the human condition. So I used to call that my shake and roll theory. Yeah. I have to tell you, though. Man, I, well, hold on. Hold on. Let me finish the story. That's, a, I, that's I, pretty I, good, though. That's pretty good. Well, I'm a dumbass. I'm probably 21, 22, and, and I'm getting pounded by this shit, and I can't figure it out. I'm looking for an answer to my faith, and I don't find it. And so I drop him off in, in San Jose. I'm going to Sacramento for, for Christmas. I bring him back, and he said, hey, I saw your shake and roll theory in a book. And I said, get the fuck out. He said, it's called, I said, what's the name of it? He said, it's called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And, um, and so I, I, I read that. And what it did for me, and, and, and the story is of a Jewish rabbi whose son uh, has that genetic defect. It's pro- called Prague. Timmy, what's it called? Where you age very quickly. And yeah, I don't. I, I can't say it. I can't he say dies as a ninety-year-old man at the age of fourteen. Never grows yeah, taller but, than four feet, three feet, or something like, like that. that. Right. That, uh, and so he and so he rejects everything that he told people when he would go visit them when they had a tragedy because now it's visited upon his and what he says is um that he doesn't believe you know we're humans subject to the human condition and then and at that point in my life i stopped blaming god for the things that would happen in my life right and i and and which to include would be praying for somebody to get a base hit in a ball game, please God, please God, yeah. right? And doing all the things <laughs> yeah. that that you pray, and then you do it and you apply it in war, right? And you see guys yeah. who are church-going, good, good people, you know, get killed, and they shouldn't be dead. And then you see guys that are, are really bad human beings, they walk out yeah. of a, an event that everybody should have got dead, and if yeah. there is a just God, that guy should be first, right? He walks out without a yeah. scratch, and you're like, and you see that over and over and over again, and so it's this random, it's randomness in the world, right? And as yeah. Timmy talked about, there's evil in the world. I I can remember, um, we were looking for dudes, and uh, when the the in 2010 11 when the government had initiated their opium eradication program, which meant uh, you better yeah. pay the chief of police and and the governor. Right, so they don't crush your opium crop. There were farmers who said, I'm not gonna grow opium, and told the Taliban that. Well, the Taliban went around and they would pour oil on children, boiling water or oil. And I remember right. they went back to a farm and they shot a 10-year-old girl, they double-tapped her in the chest. And I'll never forget, um, she had covered her face, right? Because she didn't want to see them shoot her. And they shot yeah. her through her forearms, right, in the chest and killed her. 
And as Timmy said, you see pure evil that visits itself upon children. And yeah. and then and and you I think a lot of people they they do. Where's God out here? Why has God abandoned us? Why doesn't God why answer? God yeah, why 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 doesn't God answer our prayers? And so that book at a really early age in my life really helped me cuz I I I don't believe that God intervenes in baseball games or I don't think that because Timmy cut somebody off on the 405 you know, his car gets keyed in the parking lot of Vaughn's 15 minutes later. I don't, you know, and we like, I, I know why. I know why. And so, so I again. I have to tell you, though, the Marine Corps gives you a chance to, uh, you know, I, I believe you should always do a favor for somebody, even if you don't know them, if you can, in the, in the whole military world. Um, I remember I fucked a guy over, humiliated him in front of my company, when I was uh, the XO Lima Company in uh, 1990 at AP Hill. And this fucking guy, we lost something up there. And the only name I could remember was this army dude who was in range control at AP Hill. And he fucking found that thing we lost. And we, we got it back. And I thought, that fucking guy is a better man than me. Because I would have told me to go fuck myself, you know? And uh, it was... Uh, you know, it was an a eye-opener to me. But I have to tell you, I, I listened to this guy once talk about the book of Job. And if you read the book of Job, basically God, it's kind of like what you're saying, Mike. There, there's God, and then there's Satan. And Satan says, I can make your best guy turn to shit. How? I'll put all these uh, you know, afflictions on him, and he will forsake you immediately. you got to bet, basically, in so many words, God says, give it your best shot. So he picks Job, and they torment Job. They wipe out his family, but not fast either. They die of horrific diseases and shit. He loses everything, and he becomes, uh, he becomes afflicted with horrible sores. He becomes like a beggar. And he finally, he says, he never condemns the Lord until finally it reaches its apogee. He can't stand it anymore. He goes, Lord, why have you forsaken me? I've been your best servant. I've done everything. You know, and... And God talks to him, says, who are you to question me? Who are you to know the things that I know? What I, but, but in doing that, the guy who's doing this, talking about it, says he basically admits that he was wrong, that God admits that he was wrong in fucking with Job and restores to him as much as he can. But I remember thinking when I heard that, restores to him, but he can't bring his wife and kids back. He didn't, you know? So it's a, it's one of those things that make you think, um, you know, a lot of this stuff is incomprehensible. You don't know why it happened, but you got to ultimately believe that uh, you do good, eventually, you know, good will get done unto you. You know what I mean? And uh, I, I say like that thing I was talking about with the, uh, you know, this uh, besides all the dead guys and shit, having identified people who've been horribly killed and stuff. Besides that, I mean, I. This guy was, uh, he was fucking with Joe Rutledge at ranges at AP Hill. And I heard him when I was checking out the ranges we were doing. We were doing like squad attacks and I, and I put machine guns and smaws into it. I, I, so it would be more of a combined arms thing. He comes out the tail end of this thing. It's November. It's freezing rain. And uh, he says, staff sergeant, Hispanic guy, he goes, you can't do that here, sir. I'm, I look at him. We got two more iterations to go. 
I go, you know what, Staff Sergeant? We're going to fucking keep doing this. And I'll probably never come back here again. So fuck you. And all the lieutenants and staff sergeants and sergeants, they're standing around there with those, you know, Marines are, they get their watch caps under their helmets and snot running down their noses. And they laugh at the guy in the rain. He's, he's humiliated. And then we left something up there, and I knew they were going to fire my company commander. Probably, you know, he wasn't the best company commander I ever had, but he didn't deserve to get fired. The only name I could remember was this guy. So I called him. I said, hey, Staff Sergeant, uh, this is Lieutenant Kennedy. Remember me? This is like the day before. He goes, oh, I fucking remember you. I go, yeah, I need you to do me a favor. And he laughs at me over the phone. I said, look, you know, I fucked you over. I, I should never have done that, but I did it. But this guy that someone else is going to pay for this, not me. And so he went and found that fucking spare barrel, man. And uh, I sent the platoon sergeant and the, and the kid who left it up there, and they got it. And I thought, I'll never fucking do that again. I learned a lot. That guy, was he was acting the way you should act. That broke dick fucking National Guard staff sergeant, whatever he was, you know? And uh, so, it, and that's part of it, right? That's part of it. How, how you act is really a manifestation of what you believe, I think. What are you reading? Tim, what are you reading? Me? All right, hold on a second. I, I, I'm almost prepared for this. I'm reading a book that's similar to the book we were discussing last week, which I couldn't describe very well. And, and this is The End of the World is Just Beginning by Peter Zahan. And what he's doing is he's a geostrategist guy, and he's taking... The current, um, um, the current, current snapshots of 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 each country, their aging population, where they are in the aging population, where they are in natural resources, where they are in this and that, and what he's basically saying is, because of Brenton Woods after World War II and the United States Navy guaranteeing free transport, we've set up this worldwide logistics change that is unsustainable, and it's about to unravel. And when it unravels. Every country in the world is going to be screwed. It's going to be very similar to what we were talking about with the four stages things, with the exception of the one country who has more arable farmland, more navigable rivers, more uh, 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 um, as far as secure borders and whatnot, which is the United States. He says the only the only country in shape for the upcoming unraveling is going to be America because America has everything it needs in there. But but uh, so I'm I'm reading this thing and he's going through instead of the historical uh, um, iterations of generations, he's just going through how oil game became oil, how oil became a commodity. What is bauxite? How do you make aluminum? How much bauxite is there in the world? How about cobalt? Where does it come from? Who's got it? How much cobalt is there? He's a guy who believes, by the way, in climate change, which I think is complete horseshit. But what he's saying is it is inconceivable that we could get out of uh, uh, becoming a green environmental and energy producing uh, a world. It's, it's not going to happen. There's not enough cobalt. There's not enough of anything. And so as the when a dam bursts and all these long logistical supply trains un, unravel, that's going to be the coming of the next gigantic um, a turning event, as, as, the, as you would say in the other book. And I'm finding this one is a little bit easier to follow. And I'm finding it a little bit more convincing because I didn't know where bauxite was or where bauxite ore came from. And I didn't understand exactly how precarious China is because when this unraveling happens, the one country that's screwed, that is inconceivably, that is going to absolutely be destroyed and disappear is China. 
because they have to import everything, everything. And they're not going to be able to do so. And as he points out, because he, he delayed the he just this book came out this month and he delayed it a couple months because of Ukraine. And as he pointed out in the end of this book, the supply chains are already unraveling and, and they'll, they'll never, ever repair themselves because we don't have the ability to base to build the ships to replace the ones that are doing this. These these super tankers, all these engineering marbles, all that shit gone. All these all these elaborate uh, um, the, I mean, extracting oil out of the caucus stand, out of, out of some of those stands, I'd never realized this, but they're incredibly hard engineering challenges that only Halliburton and a few other uh, companies can do. And they've gone over there and figured out how to get at some of the biggest oil deposits in the world and some of the worst weather in the world. And this, and this goddamn thing ends up, all this oil ends up in China at the tail end of the, the the longest damn supply chain you've ever seen. And the guy said, hey, look, that shit ain't going to happen anymore because the U.S. Navy ain't around to protect it anymore. Just that simple. America can't keep up its end of the bargain. Now things are going to fray. And when they fray, the one place you want to be in the world is the United States or Mexico or Canada because they get, you know, we carry them along. Yeah. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting book. What's the name it's of the, what's the name of the book? Simple. What's the, what's the name of the book? Okay, Peter Zahan is, is a prominent guy, by the way. He's written a, a shit ton of books, but uh, and he's a CIA lecturer and stuff like that. The end of the world is just beginning. Mapping the Collapse of Globalization by Peter Zahan. And that's the point of the book. It's a globalization uh, thing that we've created. It's unsustainable. It's going to fold fast. And when it does, cool. a lot of people are going to be very badly hurt. And and so coming on at the, at the end of, and I know that you talked about that um, on your interview on, on Monday with, with the author, um, God damn, what's his name? That's an interesting guy, by the way. Jeff Hopp. Yeah, Jeff Hopp. Yeah, and, and I know you, Jeff did a much better job of describing the book we were reading than I did, but it, it, it ties in directly with what he was talking about, what we've been talking about for quite a while now, as a matter of fact. So that's what I've been reading. Got it. Uh, Will, what are you reading? I'm reading a book called The Age of Entitlement by Christopher Caldwell. Uh, I got turned on to this because uh, I subscribed to the Claremont Review of Books, and this guy is like one of the editors or something like that. And the thesis of the book is that um, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 had huge social and political impacts unintended uh, on the country, that the people who voted for that uh, thought they were voting for one thing and it's been used uh, for other things. And he sort of goes through um, how even, you know, the, the group that the Civil Rights Act was really supposed to, to uh, rise up, you know, American blacks, uh, has fallen behind uh, since then. I didn't get to the end of it yet. It's a... Um, it is a depressing book because he charts sort of the changes in the country from the 60s through to today. Uh, and he does a short shrift, um, good things that have happened to the country. Um, but you see a lot of really significant fundamental social and political changes that you can't find the arrow to the good spot that they're headed to. Um, so it's a book after my own heart. 
but it's uh, it's uh, yeah, it's painful um, uh, to read. But it, I mean, it's interesting. It, uh, the I, I have a complaint. There are notes in it. It's sort of weird how he did it. He put the notes in before the index, but the notes aren't noted in the pages. So to find the exact reference, you got to jack around a little bit. Um, you got to go from the footnote but, back to the notes and then go through them. Well, there's no there's no note number in the text. What? You got to look at something and say, oh, and then you go and you look in the chapter notes and oh, that must be that. That's so sort of a pain in the neck. Um, Wait a minute. But yeah. So the note exactly is it designated in the text. You just how do you know that, how do you know there's a note? Uh, you think, hmm, I wonder what the source for that is. And, <laughs> and then you go, you go to the back looking. and you wow. read through, oh, in this chapter, these, oh, that must be it right there. Um, that's amazing. I've never heard of that. Yeah. But you know, this is, this is, this, this is must be high history. end. This must be high end literature then. Cause I mean, obviously uh, it's coming out of the journal of literary reviews that you subscribe to. Uh, so Claire, it would, it would, review of books. It would seem to me a great. Uh, publication i'm sure it is um uh what's interesting though this is our history you know this stuff all happened in our lifetime uh and he he sort of shows how things happened why they happened and then the impact that they've had and we we were just busy living our lives during this time um you know, more, yeah, I mean, you think about it. Bill Clinton was a radical, right? But he was not going to have. Uh, hey, he balanced the damn budget. Gay marriage, <laughs> you know, et cetera. And he right. goes through the quotes of some. I mean, it's just strange how things have changed in so many ways. And he, he sort of tra tracks it back to the Civil Rights Act and how how it's been used by the Supreme Court and by lawyers and how it's changed society that you can't speak the truth in public, right? Can't associate freedom of association has been done away with. Yeah. But even just speaking truth. It's one more packet of packet of sins from the evil Democrats. Is, you, know, you look at the history of what he shows though, what he shows though is that it's really, Politicians on both sides. Yeah, no shit. Really had a lot to do with this. There is a Washington consensus out there, and huge parts of the country have paid the price for it. Yeah, because they found out in the democratic form of government. I mean, fucking Demosthenes found this out in Greece. Yeah. The road to riches is getting elected and yep. stealing money from the taxpayers. Yeah. One way or another. So, All right. Well, anyways. and what's the title of that? The Age of Entitlement. Christopher Caldwell. I think it was uh, 2019 or 2020, because I got it in paperback. Got it. Jeffrey, what are you reading? I just finished The Tr Professional. It was about a middleweight contender in 19, late 1950s who's going for the title and about his preparations and uh, the fight he had. And it's interesting. It was a, a book written in 1958, and the guy who wrote it, co-wrote the book uh you might remember uh run the daylight about vince lombardi yeah absolutely and also and then uh, also he wrote mash that became the movie of the miniseries <coughs> this guy uh 
this is his first book. He's a sports writer. He wrote this book. It was very well written, and it's a good story. And at the end, the, the professional loses the big fight. It's kind of disappointing. And he gets hurt doing it, too. Don't know if he's going to live or not. But uh, it's very, the whole thing is, is written in 1958. And almost more than the story, just the way he, they wrote then, you know, and the, uh, the way our society was in 1958. Mostly New York City. The kid grew up on the west side of Manhattan, which is also known as Hell's Kitchen. But they don't make, it's not a lacrimose story about poverty. No, it's a story about uh, you know, the, the, the characters that are in the professional boxing realm and stuff. Touches on a couple of shady characters. Says a lot about fighters that uh, were famous in the 40s and 50s, stuff like that. And uh, just the, the, the culture that the really good managers, trainers, and fighters had. So it was the type of book that I really liked. Timmy probably liked it. You know, he's into that type of stuff. You guys would like it too because... The prose is like flawless, you know what I mean? Right. The guy nearly knew what he was doing. And he got and I think I told you this before. He got a telegram from Ernest Hemingway right after the book was published, writing a good review of the book. And then the other guy who wrote a good review was unknown then, was Elmore Leonard, who wrote yeah. the forward to this. That's who some wrote, shit there. Yeah, forward the guy who wrote Get Shorty and a million other things, you know? Later. The um, so that's that's it. Got it. I, I started reading because of this conversation, um, or one a different one, I started reading when bad things happen to good people again, and um, you know, I, I, I'm kind of a victim of the way um, we've read hardcover books in that highlighting and then annotating in the margins, and right. and I hate that. Elect if you read electronic books, it's much more difficult. You can't just whip out a pen and write. You know, you have to type something if you want to make a note or something like that. Uh, but I, I would tell anybody out there that um, struggles to make sense of, you know, struggles with their faith. Um, I, I would give you two books, and also most of that is is generated through, you know, traumatic experiences. I mean, and and I mean, just the four of us. Um, you know, Will losing his wife, uh, Jeff almost being killed, um, Timmy, what Timmy's gone through in his life, you know, and the most squared away homeless man ever. Come on, dude. No, nah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, you joke about it now, right? But yeah, I mean, I, we, I joke about it now because I can. When you, when Tim first started talking about this, when he was going to get together with us, he talked about he threw up in every airport because he knew we would somehow or other find out, and he was terrified. I mean. You, but these two mm -hmm. books, in my opinion, are two of the greatest books ever written. And, and one is uh, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Um, and then the other one is uh, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. I would, t I would tell you, uh, you know, to read those books. And, and again, as, as, as everybody here has said at one time, uh, who's read a book a second time, um, as your life experience has changed, as you've grown and right. read more and learned more, you you look at a book and you're like, how in the I know I didn't I know I didn't come to read that that way the last time I read this, and um, so I it's to me it's just um, it's it, when bad things happen to good people just a fantastic book I love the way he starts it he, this kind of I'm not a theologian I'm a rabbi you know of a congregation I I deal in this stuff all the time um, and this is what this book is not but this is what this book is. 
and uh, and I thought I thought it was very cool. Anyway, all right, boys. I appreciate your time tonight, and uh, and have a great week. This morning, yeah. This morning, Friday morning, right? Exactly. <laughs> and uh, Will, you want to give us a gambling update? How are we doing? Or good week so far. Took eight hundred out of them today. Uh, played a tournament last night, <laughs> finished uh, fifth out of 75. Whoa, congratulations. Oh, yeah, dude. not a lot of money in it. Well, I've been, I've, been, I've been doing pretty good in these nightly tournaments the last month or so. I've, done a, I've had a first, a second, a fifth, a seventh, uh, yeah. Top ten type thing. How does that manifest yeah. itself? Do you? Do people? Are they then down there at the end? They know what a formidable card player you are. Do they simply fold and throw their cards in and says and say I quit? Um, no, the player pool is not particularly strong in these. What's interesting about them? They're called bounty tournaments. So you got a twenty-five dollar chip, and when you lose, you got to give someone your chip. So it incentivizes you to try and knock people out. So they're a little bit more ruthless, but there's a different mindset than a regular game. No wonder you do so well. What's interesting to me is how some people don't really get it, just how you should be playing this game a little bit different. But it comes to you Uh, like a baby goes to his mother's nipple, right? Oh, it's wonderful. (laughs) There There is a certain beauty when uh, people look at you like, how can you play those two cards? It's like, because I knew you couldn't have me playing those two cards, period. Uh, and out the door they go. So, yeah. Yeah, so it's, uh, yeah, this is a good week this week so far. All right, well, More to come, we hope. Congratulations. We're, we're proud of you. We're proud of you, rejecting the retirees at the place and keeping their stinking little uh, $25 chip. That's, that's, that's living, man. Yeah, Will's like he's like Jimmy Burke and Robert De Niro character in Goodfellas. You know, he, he gets the kick out of taking all the money. <laughs> all right, boys. Watching him, watching him crying as they leave the house, having to thumb their way home and stuff. They're in the cars. <laughs> have a good week, Mr. Cosentini. Yeah, there is joy in that. All right, man. You too, Mac. There is joy in that. Yes. All right. Thanks, <laughs> fellas.